Blog Talk Radio. have a new intro. I just found that out right now. <laughs> Welcome to On Blast with Vita Star. I'm your host, Vita Star, along with my co-host for tonight, Bruce Smith. Hello, Bruce. Hey, what's going on? All right, so I want to do something a little bit different this time. We usually get right into the intro and the hot topics and all of that, but today we lost a revolutionary at the age of 95. Nelson Mandela passed away in his home in South Africa, and um, he had a huge impact on the world. I mean, there's so much to talk about in regards to Nelson Mandela, and I don't think a lot of people are aware of who he is. I mean, unfortunately, like, we don't know who he is and the impact he's had on the world or even know what he's most noted for. So um, I just wanted to share a little bit about his life. I'm going to just read a brief timeline about him. And um, we have a little bit of audio from when he was elected president of South Africa and uh, a tribute song that was dedicated to him when he was in prison that we'll also play. Um, Also, you know, if anyone wants to call in and, you know, share anything that they feel about Nelson Mandela and his legacy, feel free to call in. The number is 310-982-4273. If you would like to speak, make sure that you press 1 when you dial in, um, when you call in. So Nelson Mandela... Um, and by the way, let me apologize in advance. I'm not great with names, so I'm going to try my best to pronounce them and show as much respect as possible um, by pronouncing names the best way I can. So bear with me. 
So Nelson Mandela was born as Roli Hala Mandela. He was born in a small South African village called Mbezo. When he started, he started school in 1925, and his teacher gave him the name Nelson. So that's where the name Nelson comes from. In 1937, he attended college, well, what they call university there, and he leaves pretty quickly. He enrolled in Town, a college in Fort Beaufort. He later attended University of Fort Hare in Alice, but is asked to leave after boycotting the voting process of the Student Representative Council. In 1941, Mandela fled to Johannesburg to avoid an arranged marriage, where he met Walter Sisulu, who becomes his mentor and a lifelong friend. He starts working as a clerk at a law firm. In 1943 to 1944, Mandela joined the African National Congress as an activist and later formed the ANC's Youth League with Sisulu and Oliver Tambo. In 1948, the National Party came to power and introduced an apartheid policy of racial segregation limiting black African freedom. The ANC launched campaigns to resist the laws. In 1952, Mandela and Tambo opened the first black law firm in South Africa, providing affordable or free legal counsel to blacks who otherwise might not have legal representation. 1960, South African police killed 69 black protesters in Sharpeville who were demonstrating against the government's requirement for non-whites to carry identity cards as passes. The government declared, state of, declared a state of emergency and banned the ANC. From 1961 to 1963, Mandela was appointed the leader of the newly formed Mkonto Wetsuzwe guerrilla movement, an underground military arm of the ANC. He is arrested tried and sentenced to five years imprisonment. After raiding the ANC offices, police find documents outlining an armed campaign to overthrow the government. Mandela and nine others are charged with conspiracy. In 1964, after an eight-month trial, Mandela and seven others are sentenced to life in prison and taken to Robben Island. Before the trial, Mandela made an impassioned speech, I am prepared to die from the dock. And if you want to get that speech, it is available um, on YouTube and also on SoundCloud. In 1990, after 27 years, Mandela is freed from prison. A year later, at the ANC's first national conference, Mandela is elected president of the party. 1993, he is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And South African president, F.W. de Klerk are jointly awarded. Actually, Mandela and South African President F.W. de Klerk are jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993. For the, in 1994, for the first time, all races vote in South Africa's democratic elections. The ANC wins 252 of the 400 seats in the National Assembly, and Mandela is elected President of South Africa. In 1995, South Africa wins the Rugby World Cup, which is a big deal because it's the World Cup. And I know in the U.S. we don't really care too much about soccer, but this was a, a major thing. And he wore the Springbok jersey, and he presents the trophy to the captain of the team, which is seen as a major step in reconciliation of white and black South Africa. 
1999, Mandela relinquishes his presidency in favor of Pablo Mbeki and tours the world as a global leader. 2001, Mandela is diagnosed with prostate cancer, begins medical treatment. He announces his retirement from public life, saying he plans to spend more time with his family. In 2011, Mandela suffers his first lung infection, and a year later is hospitalized for repeated treatments and surgery. Mandela celebrated his 95th birthday while continuing to receive treatment at Pretoria Hospital. For weeks, doctors have said Mandela remains in stable, a critical condition during that time. However, today, he passed away and died at the age of 95. Jacob Zuma, the current president of South Africa, says that South Africa has lost their greatest son. That's just a little bit, it's very, I know, very brief timeline um, of his life, but there's so much information out there right now. And if you want to continue to research his legacy, um, Think Progress actually has a really good article if you go to the front page of their website, thinkprogress.org, and there's more information there. We will actually continue uh, doing the show. I just want to make sure that, you know, we show some honor and respect for Nelson Mandela, who was a great revolutionary. He was actually my first black history project in elementary school when I was in about second grade. So that's why I, I, this really meant a lot to me, that we at least take a little bit of time to show him some honor and some respect. Um, I have just a short, brief snippet of one of his speeches. Um, this is a speech he gave right after he was elected president of South Africa. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The moment to bridge the chasms that divide us has come. The time to build is upon us. We have at last achieved our political emancipation. We pledge ourselves to liberate all our people from the continuing bondage of poverty deprivation, suffering, gender, and other discrimination. We commit ourselves to the construction of a complete, just, and lasting peace. We understand it still that there is no easy road to freedom. We know it well that none of us acting alone can achieve success. We must therefore act together as a united people for national reconciliation, for nation building, for the birth of a new world. Let there be justice for all. Let there be peace for all. The sun shall never set on so glorious a human achievement. Let freedom reign. Hi, thank you. This is the unknown grave. The one who died maintaining his might. His will been so strong and musically inclined. His sad melodies coming out like a smoke from the woody fire. And he sang, my boo, 
here in Africa. Sing now, Africa. Sing loud, sing to the people. Let them give us something to the world and not just to take it from it. And will you ring the bells when you come back? Will you beat the drums when you come back? Will you ring the bells when you come back? Will you beat the drums when you come back? Will you ring the bells when you come back? Will you beat the drums when you come back? Our lost African music will tend to the music. Of the people, yeah, the people's music, by the people's culture, and I'll be the one who climbs up the mountain, reaching for the top of the world today. Well, the poor woman waiting for the neighborhood. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, I was just informed that I made a mistake, and I want to thank my co-host today, Bruce. Um, I said World Cup, and I said soccer when South Africa actually won the World Cup in rugby. So that was my fault and my bad. Um, the call is on the line. I don't know if anyone had anything they wanted to say. 
um, regarding Nelson Mandela, but I have caller 619. Is that Marissa? Uh, yeah, that's me, Vita. I thought that was a, you have- a wonderful tribute. Thank you, Marissa. Did you want to say anything at all? Uh, I, You know, I, I, I often feel like... Uh, we tend to get caught up in the sadness of, of losing individuals. And, you know, my perspective is a little bit different in that rather than feel the weight of that sadness, I prefer to rejoice in the accomplishments of their presence. And I think that Nelson Mandela is one of those individuals that we see once in a, once in a generation that makes an impact on more than can ever be counted. And um, I would hope that as news spreads of his passing, that we all take the opportunity to really celebrate his life and his accomplishments. And even beyond that, that we are inspired by him to do exactly what he did, which was never, never give up on his goals, regardless of the obstacles and the challenges and uh, the, the odds that were set against him. I mean, he, he is a, certainly a tremendous individual, um, a great human being, but he is just that as we are, human beings. And we're all capable of uh, making an impact and making a difference, not only in our own lives, but also like him in the lives of countless many, if we choose and apply the will to stick towards our goals and live by, you know, that difference that we want to make. Thank you so much, Marissa. Um, I have a couple other callers, and I don't know if they want to chime in on this, but I have a caller, six, seven, if your area code is 678. Hey, okay, how are you doing? This is Q. This is Hello? who? Hey, how are you yeah. doing? This is Q. I'm- I'm just going to chime in on what the lady said and also mention something about the topic. Uh, yeah, she's absolutely right with, with all that. Uh, the, the sadness, I think, the reason why, because she asked the question about uh, why, you know, the fact that we're not celebrating them. I, I think, you know, the sad thing is that we're we're missing them because we know it's a couple of decades before we see another one. And as it relates to the show, it's so sad because many of us are selling out for money and many of us are selling out for temporary glorification. So when these Mandela, uh, Mandela types come around, but once so often, uh, it, it's hard to see them again because that, that essence of us is fading. And soon my assumption is that the only thing left of brown and darker-skinned people will be those who have something to do with money, whether uh, victimized by it or um, stressing for it. Thank you so much, Q. Um, I also have another caller, um, caller 818. I believe that's T. Hello? Is that T? Yes, it is. How are you doing, sweetie? I'm good. Did you want to chime in on this, on this real quick? Um, oh, God, I'm I'm not really one of those people that um I, I don't really God I don't want to I don't want to sound horrible but I don't really have a lot of emotional ties to people that I don't know when when they pass away. 
I think it sucks, and I was very surprised. Well, I wasn't surprised because he's been sick, but it really sucks. I do remember when apartheid ended, and and, and I remember. This, yeah, it it sucks, but he's old, and and old people die. But I don't think this is about being sad. As, I mean, as Marissa said, I mean, a legend, a revolutionary, an icon, um, a freedom fighter passed away. I mean, that's and, and, and it, doesn't mean it doesn't make you sad. It's just, and, and like I said at the beginning, it's mostly just honoring his life. Well, honestly, I, I really have to say, the, my main thing I'm thinking is, is that he had, every, everyone's life is a road. It's a journey. He had a long journey, and he made it to the end, and he made it to the end at 95 years old. You know, good for him. He had a great life, and, and now he doesn't have to worry about anything anymore. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy for him, you know, that he's made it to the end of his road. That's all I can really say. And, and, that's, and I think uh, the fact that, he's not, that he made it to 95, I think that's one of the longest, I mean, that's a very long life. You know, that's almost 100 years. Um, oh, yeah, so that, to, for him to live yeah, that long and be, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, for him to live that long and, and still be able to, to function to the extent that he could, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's impressive in itself. But, I, I mean, I, don't, I guess I don't really know about the, the whole, say, rejoice thing. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel happy for him, you know. He, I'm sure he didn't die, you know, miserable or worried, you know. So he's had a good life. I'm happy for him. Well, all right. Um. <laughs> just, just, just to chime into what the caller just said, um, you know, I sort of understand what she's getting at. I think that death is certain, and we all know that it's coming. But, you know, for someone like Nelson Mandela, like, he's never really gone. I mean, the things that he accomplished in his life are going to be with us forever. So it's understandable that some people are sad, but, you know, most people could only hope to to leave a mark on the world like Nelson Mandela has. So I think what she's saying is, you know, while she doesn't actually know him, you know, so she doesn't have that personal sadness at the same time, seeing everything that he's accomplished, you know, and that he did make it to 95, you know, she's not necessarily as sad because, I mean, his mark is here forever. Well, I think he really struck a very interesting point about how I feel about that, and that's because I'm not losing Nelson Mandela. I have him the same amount now that I had him before, and everything about him that's cool is always going to be there, and my kids can always have that, and it's always going to be a part of my life. And he was never personally a part of my life, so I really haven't lost him, and everything that he left that's important I've been seeing it all over my news feed. You know, he was a, he, all those good things. I don't lose anything by him dying because I don't know him. He left so so much good behind. I feel you. Um, well, with that, I want to just say, <laughs> with that, I just want to say, uh, rest in power, Nelson Mandela. Um, well, we're just going to go ahead and move right on to the rest of the show. Um, Thank you, everyone, for, you know, participating. And also let me just add in that people who are hitting me up on Facebook, you, the chat room is open. Try refreshing the show page, and the chat room should be up by now. So just letting you guys know that. Um, well, last show we talked about black atheism and the arts. Well, this show we're going to talk specifically about black Hollywood. We're going to talk about black Hollywood images, content, quality, and all that. So 
you know, just let everyone know and be completely honest, what sparked this conversation really was the best man holiday. And that was Which a people who <laughs> Bruce Lee. <laughs> we weren't at that part yet. Terrible. Okay. Uh, okay. So we... <laughs> that's my wonderful co-host Bruce Smith. Um, <laughs> the Best Man Holiday was a sequel to The Best Man, for those who may not know. And so, just to kind of give you guys a brief summary before we get to that topic, or what we're going to kind of cover in that segment which is, um, you know, we we'll answer a few questions. Do we hold black films and TV to a higher or lower standard in comparison to how we view mainstream or non-black films or TV shows? How would you define black Hollywood, or does it even matter? With the success of Best Man Holiday, a lot of questions and controversial dialogue regarding race and film has bubbled everything from criticizing the critics of it, such as <laughs> um, as well as, you know, USA Today referred to it as a race-themed film up until Twitter, you know, um, and, you know, when USA, changed, USA Today changed the title of their article when it could have just said Best Man Holiday Beat Four, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but you know what? There's a lot to talk about in regards to that, and we'll get into all that in a second. Um, right now we're going to talk about some of the news topics that have been Circling the web and, you know, your news feeds on Facebook and Twitter and all of that. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stories that have come up. Um, well, for those of you guys who don't know, today was the largest fast food strike. Did any of you guys hear about that at all? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So for those of us who haven't heard, uh, fast food workers faced a one-day strike in 100 cities across the country uh, with workers joining the largest ever action to protest industry's low wages in places such as New York City, Detroit, Pittsburgh, and Washington, D.C. Striking workers demanded, wages raised, uh, demanded that wages be raised to $15 an hour, and they wanted the right to form a union, calling the current federal minimum of $7.25 unlivable. Nearly 70% of fast food workers make between $7.26 and $10.09, and, and over a quarter of industry workers rely on these wages to support at least one child. Thursday's strike is the largest and growing string of protests, including a strike that reached 50 cities in August. In Washington, McDonald's workers went on strike at the company's location at the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum. The struggle facing low-wage workers can be overwhelming. On one striking McDonald's worker told St. Progress, and by the way, I'm reading to stprogress.org, um, told Think Progress, I'm hurting, I'm crying in my heart, my kids are starving. $8.25 is not enough to live in D.C. or anywhere for that matter when the cost of living is constantly going up. The $7.25 she makes at McDonald's is not enough for her to support her two children. She says, quote, I live in Capitol Hill and my rent is $10.50 in $1,050 a month. I work my butt off at work for for a $300 paycheck that I can't even use to pay my rent. So it's saddening and it's depressing. I mean, these stories are are not unusual. People who are trying to support a family while, you know, working a low wage job. Um, Bruce, what do you think about that? Like, what do you do? You think that you know some people are saying that asking for a living wage is too much, or even asking for they're asking $15 an hour. Is that what do you think about all of this? I think as a human being who goes into a job on a daily basis, asking for a living wage is like the minimum. You know, I think, you know, some people say like, well, you know, you're not supposed to be working fast food forever. You know, you should move on to something else. And I'm sure everybody would like to move on to something else. 
I don't think most people want to work fast food. But if you have to, you work your job, you know. And it's like I think sometimes these people, a lot of people talk without the actual experience of living their life. And I think if you ask these people who worked other jobs, you know, they're complaining about $15 an hour, that if they could get paid the same way that they get paid at their job to go work fast food, they'd say no. You know, and people talk about how easy working fast food is, but nobody would actually choose to work fast food for whatever wage they're making. They'd probably much rather work wherever they're at now. So I I think the living wage, I, I don't think it's asking for too much at all. You know what's funny? I worked fast food um, when I was in community college. And let me tell you, I was never going to go back to that. I hated that shit. I mean, it was. I felt like I was doing a bunch of just bullshit all day. I mean, it, I don't know, dealing with cranky-ass people. No matter how nice you were, people were going to treat you like shit. You had a, I had a manager that treated me like shit. And then I'd do a bunch of shitty-ass work. I mean, I didn't last that long. I was up for like four weeks. They fired my ass. <laughs> but, you know. The constant smell of that food is just bad. What'd you say? The constant smell of that food, just working in that environment, smelling that food all the oh. time is not good. I thought it was awful. Marissa, did you want to chime in? Yeah, actually, I was just sort of reminiscing back on my first uh, taxable job, and that was working for a McDonald's. And I was uh, 16, and I had a tremendous amount of fun because we worked the drive through and we had those little headsets. But I, I think, you know, in, in thinking back on it, uh, there were adults, you know, that were working the same lines uh, with me. And, and most of them didn't want to work that job, but they needed to work that job. And I think oftentimes we forget that, uh, especially if we're a little bit more privileged than uh, that fast food worker, that it's mostly out of necessity. And I, I don't think that it is too much to ask for a living wage because we're not asking for a luxury wage. But it doesn't just apply to fast food. That living wage applies to all minimum wage jobs across the board, and I think that's the context that it has to be taken into consideration in. Um, but but really, I think one of the things that we forget when we talk about this fast food issue is that most of those restaurants are franchises, meaning there's, there's an individual that has bought in and is paying uh, corporate fees to be able to have those golden arches uh, on their establishment. And really what we need to target is that corporation that is unwilling to uh, to lower their fees or their profitability, and that's then where the lobbyists um, come into play that allow for tax loopholes. I was just reading some statistics this morning about uh, the CEO uh, pays where they they the corporations actually get a tax loophole or a tax subsidy by giving their CEOs higher wages and uh, payments. So the CEO wait, 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 wait. Let's rewind that for a second. Did you? So I'm not sure if I heard what I think I heard. So let's call corporate welfare. It's called corporate okay. welfare. Okay, okay, oh, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's, let's just rewind what she just said, though. Did you just say that 
the corporation gets what is you said they get a subsidy? They get a subsidy. They get a tax subsidy. So it's a, it's a loophole so that they pay less taxes because they've given their CEOs um, certain payment benefits. So that CEO gets an extra $20 million, $30 million uh, a year. See, and, and that's what I thought co- I heard. That's what I thought I heard. And I wasn't yeah. sure. And I'm, that's I'm, a very common thing. But I have a question. For all these people who I see on Facebook or on TV or on Channel Fox News um, saying, oh, these workers don't deserve any type of money, the prices of our food is going to go up, although McDonald's and all the other places keep raising their prices anyway. Um, I hear all this protest and anger about that. How come I haven't heard a single peep from anybody saying, you know what, these corporations, these fast food places are able to give their CEOs money and then get a, a tax subsidy for it? How come I don't hear these things? That's what I don't understand. Yeah, and these are people, these are working class people. I'm not talking about people, not even just class news. I'm talking about just working class people upset about the workers get, wanting a raise. Can I you answer know, that real quick? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, feel free. Is that, you, you know, is that Q? Yeah, this, this is Q. Um, mm-hmm. You know, here's, here's something direct according to where you live, and I don't know where you live, but just to give you another example of corporate welfare, your city council is really your enemy. Because what your city council is, relies on is the fact that you and your neighbor don't stick together. So what they do is raise things on you that you don't petition against, and they put contracts against you that you're not aware of, slowly but surely. And this is what causes the whole essence of the raising of the minimum wage. People like to focus on the minimum wage or the fast food. That's really not the conversation. The conversation is why things around the employee have raised, but the level of quality has not raised to justify the amount that you're charging. So let's take an apartment, for example. Or, or why, also your income isn't being raised. I mean, I'm just saying the phone right. there, but go ahead. Well, 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 that's the reason why income is raised is because the things around you cost more. So let's say right. an apartment 10 years ago, let's assume that it was $400. Why is it 600 now? It's the same apartment. There's been no level of, of, of increase in, in modern, uh, modernization. Or you look at a stadium, according to where you live, and this speaks to what the lady was saying just a moment ago. Stadiums get, get uh, tax write-offs because they say, and if you notice, most stadiums are in the lower-class neighborhoods, because they, they say we're going to bring X amount of jobs to this portion of the city, when in actuality they hire people from outside of that portion of the city, so they do the city uh, injustice, which is why places like in California are starting now to pass laws that say, no, you can't give a tax subsidy unless you very, ver- verify that you're bringing X amount of people uh, are going to be employed from this community. You're not going to get that tax subsidy. So that's... That's what I want to point. It's really not the fast food minimum wage argument. It's why are things raised at a higher level when really there's no justification for it? I mean, you know, Vita, I mean honestly, yeah, the oh, I'm sorry. The the uh, the this is the fact of the matter. And, and I've worked in corporate America for many many years because I'm old. And this is the fact of the matter. When a company has too big of a profit 
they take a chunk of the money and they hand it out to all the highest paid people in the company, the CEO, the CFO, the VP, the, and maybe the managers if there's enough to go around. And all the people that are out doing the hardest work or doing the most work, they give them nothing. And they do get, in, for, in return, they get a tax credit for it. So they only give out the money for the credit, but then they make sure that that money only benefits the people who already make the most money. This mm-hmm. is a very common thing in most profitable companies. That's, that's, that's common. That's what they do. And the idea that they want you to believe that this fast work, food worker, he's not skilled. He doesn't have an education. He doesn't deserve a living wage. is ridiculous because those fast food workers are the most essential part of McDonald's. Without them, right. you don't have anything. So they do right. deserve to make a living wage because they are the most essential. Well, they don't deserve it. Raise the wage, and you will then hire fast food workers who do deserve it. So that problem is solved with going ahead and changing it. And right, you, and, and I would, go ahead. If you if you pay if you if you have a job paying fifteen dollars an hour, you're not going to ha- hire the average Joe. But people who can't get jobs that pay a lot more money will have better opportunity because if the, if the minimum wage is $8 an hour, you're going to pay your housekeeper $10 an hour. If the minimum wage is $15 an hour, then housekeepers will get $17 an hour. So there's always going to be other opportunities, but they try to say that you're going to kill the small business owner. But the fact of the matter is, is guess what? If the small business owner can't survive now or then, that's a part of doing business. But we cannot sacrifice um, a whole group of people for a few people. Thank you and, so much for that. Actually, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. We have to. We have a lot of topics to get through. We can't spend the entire show on just one article. Uh, we have like five, six others. <laughs> sorry, but uh, but thank you. But if you guys have anything you want to add, you guys can include that in the chat room. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, these Rochester teens that were arrested for obstructing the sidewalk while they were just waiting for the school bus. So three teen boys waiting for a school bus in Rochester, New York, were arrested on Wednesday, after, well, last week Wednesday, after police claimed they obstructed pedestrian traffic by standing on the sidewalk. The 16- and 17-year-old boys were charged with disorderly conduct, a catch-all that is often used to criminalize conduct of the homeless or to punish those who are perceived as simply uncooperative, including schoolchildren. A police report obtained by WROC in Rochester said the students were obstructing pedestrian traffic while standing on a public sidewalk, preventing free passage of citizens walking by and attempting to enter and exit a store. Your, com- your complainant gave several lawful, clear, and concise orders for the group to disperse and leave the area without compliance. The boys told police they were waiting for a school bus to take them to a scrimmage basketball game, and when their coach arrived, he told police they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. But rather than let the boys go, as Coach Jacob got asked, police threatened to arrest Scott also. Quote, I said, sir, I'm the adult. I'm the varsity basketball coach. How can you book me? What am I doing wrong? Matter of fact, what are these guys doing wrong, said Scott, who is also a guidance counselor at the boys' school. All three boys and their coach were African American. Scott expressed distress that 17 other team members witnessed this police disrespect for both him and the arrested boys. The boys' parents paid $200 each so that their children would be home for Thanksgiving 
the boys pleaded not guilty and are scheduled for trial trial December 11th. Wow. I think this is definitely one of is an example of how we are constantly criminalizing black boys in this country. I mean, this is unusual. I, I know so many cases here in South L.A. where, you know, you have young black and Latino males and that they were arrested or ticketed for doing something basic, like, you know, they were standing outside of school, but school was over. And they were just waiting for their parents to come pick them. I've heard all, all kinds of stories. I've heard stories about kids being ticketed at the park just for hanging out. And usually they're males and black males. Um, what do you got? I want to kind of get, you know, your take on that. I know, Bruce, I'm sure you have a lot you can say about that. I just think, um, well, I don't like to put police all in the one bag because I know a lot of times we do. But it just seems like at times there's some police where when they show up to a scene, they have to leave with something. So it's like, you know, they show up to the scene, they get a call about these kids, they show up to the scene, talk to the kids, the kids are clean, they're doing nothing wrong. You can't just leave without doing something. And and, and it just really upsets me for two reasons. One, because it's it's a complete waste. The kids, the kids had to go to jail. The parents had to pay to get the kids out for Thanksgiving, you know, you have to deal with the court, all of that, which is more cost, and taxpayers have to take care of that as well. But then also at the same time, it, it creates this distrust on both ends, you know what I'm saying? Because now, you know, you have to look at the cops a little bit differently because you, you don't know what exactly is going to happen when they pull up to you, you know what I'm saying? Because if you're, if you're just sitting there waiting for the school bus and, it's, and you know they can take you to jail, it creates this distrust within you where you look at them skeptically, and they're supposed to be here mm. to protect us, and, and, and that causes problems. So then it's like, what happens when the cop who isn't going to do that shows up? I mean, he still wears that uniform, so some people are going to look at that cop differently no matter what, regardless of if that cop is just showing up to do his job like he does on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, I think, you know, cops to do things like that, you know, not only is it just wrong, but it also creates, you know, an extended problem that, you know, you deal with down the line, not even in that neighborhood, but all across the country. And I I agree with that completely. I mean, I think that for the most part, there isn't really a lot of trust anyway between police and the public in general. And then I think it's even worse when we look at uh, the mistrust between African Americans and the police or black people in the police, and black people, actually African-Americans only, but black people in the police. Um, Marissa or Q or T, do any of you guys want to jump in? Let's start off with T. So I think we start off with Marissa last time. T? That, this is a topic that really makes me mad, and, and it, it really it really kills me that um, so many excuses are given to people in this situation. It's it's the old, well, not old, it's actually rather new, the the being a racist has become not as bad as someone calling you a racist. And and that's a problem. So people are free to do whatever they want. They're free to attack your children. They're free to kill them. And they're free to use the Negroes or scary uh, defense against doing that. And if you say it's because I'm black, oh, you're just pulling the race race card. Because you'll be sooner forgiven for calling someone the N-word than you will be forgiven for calling someone a racist in this country. That's the climate right now. 
I've actually heard someone who I think is racist say something like that. <laughs> I, forgot, I can't remember his name. He was on, um, he was this conservative guy that was on uh, Real Time with Bill Maher once, and he was like, the worst thing you can call anyone is a racist. And he was saying that because if you call someone a racist, so that somehow that ruins their lives. What, what's funny is that I think if you're more attacked for calling someone a racist than you are, but in like, just like what you say, you're more attacked for calling someone a racist than the racist themselves. So I totally right. see where you're coming from on that. Being called a I'll racist can ruin your life, but being a racist won't. Exactly. You know what? That's the God's honest truth. There are people that have been in the Ku Klux Klan and well-known white supremacist group to be elected officials. And maybe it's just a smaller town or a smaller city, but that, nonetheless, that's what they've been elected to do. If Obama called someone a racist tomorrow, he couldn't be elected as a city council person. <laughs> Again, I look at it as... Uh, I just suggest that it's still an economic thing. Uh, out of all American groups, I look at us as black males are the least likely to stick together. This would never happen to a Jewish male. It would, ne it would never happen to an Asian male, and it's less likely to happen to uh, black women because these groups stick together and make loud noises. Unfortunately, we as black males, we got the defenseless, why me type of conversation and what it comes down to is city council once again sees uh, a male latin black or even white time in jail they get to charge the state they charge you the taxpayer and they make money off of these situations so even if the charges don't stick they may have made seven hundred and fifty dollars over three over a three-day holding period or even having a bailout is still charged to the state as a criminal. They don't define criminals as whether it's misdemeanor or felony. So this is a money thing once again. And unfortunately, when cops have quote-unquote quotas for how many cases they actually bring in, um, this is what we have. Because the people aren't sticking together, and more, more, more so we as black males are not sticking together and stopping this victimization of younger males. Okay, oh, you know what? I, I, I'm sorry. I have I, to say I something. Have to, I, I, I want. Okay, go, I'm going to chew. Go ahead. Just one second. Everything you said, I agreed with you except for one thing. The biggest problem is that black men are targeted. The biggest problem is, is that black men are abused. Black men not sticking together is not the biggest problem. Finding a way, and, and I don't mean to attack you at all, and I know that this is the way people are ingrained in society to believe, but there's always a way to figure out why the oppression of black people is the fault of black people. And it's Thank not you. our fault. It's not black men's fault at all that we are, this is the problem. We've learned to blame, the, victim, the victimizer has learned to teach you to look to the victim and blame them because then they're scot-free. They're innocent of everything. There's a sweet little innocent white people who have no other choice but to oppress you because <laughs> you're not sticking together. And that's not well, what I mean at all. No, you're not saying that at all. And I don't think you're saying that. Let me be clear. I don't think you're saying that. What I'm saying is the idea that they've been pumping this thought into our head for so many years makes us easily be able to, we're, we're able to rationalize this idea by saying we should stick together. They put that thought in their head because it shifts the blame. It's like how Walmart 
how the executives at Walmart or the corporation or the people affiliate, they lobby to get people to vote, people who work for Walmart to vote against their best interests because they want us, the middle class, to look at the poor like the poor is bad because if we're looking at them, we can't look at Walmart and say, you're the one who should be paying them more, so I'm not paying their welfare. And that's the same thing with racism. They try to convince us that we need to look at each other and say, well, I wouldn't be stereotyped if you wouldn't sag your pants. No, I wouldn't be stereotyped if some asshole wasn't stereotyping me. Absolutely. But I look at things as money and power. And it's the same thing with the minimum wage discussion. When, now that you have people sticking together in the minimum wage discussion, it's forcing that change. The same thing with people who once upon a time were waitresses and waiters. They didn't stick together, and the powers that be lowered their minimum wage just for them because some jealous person saw them making a lot of money under the table. This actually happened. So the reason I said what I said isn't to this, this to give the, 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 the a-holes a pass for, for, for their targeting. What I'm saying is the unfortunate thing for us as male, I volunteer a lot. The, the unfortunate thing with us as male, we have to be empowered to the point where we can do some influence or at least get rid of people who are not looking at our or, – or, or who are those races. I mean, I would prefer, to your point, for males just to be aware who they're reelecting, who are actually the races, per your point, with some of the racist KK members uh, who, who got uh, reelected. So, yeah, I, I totally under, agree. I'm just more on the money and power portion of the discussion. And no, I, I understand I that. that. I just be... think that there, one, one last point. I agree with everything you said, but the, but the real true bottom line is this. As long as we can stick together, we can but right now, in this society, a bunch of black men stick together to stand for their rights. It's going to be dismissed as pulling the race card. So we need to go ahead and go after the real problem instead. I, I and that's agree. my I, only I, point. I, I would just say that maybe a little bit better stated is that the victimization is being targeted to those that have less access to uh, representation and therefore will put up or give less of a fight or have less of a fighting chance to overturn the injustices that are happening. And so you're, you're looking at a socioeconomic situation, and quite unfortunately, as less than 10% of the nation's population, the African-American community also represents a small amount of, uh, of that economic status. I think I, I think that those are all really good points. Um, however, I don't know. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that black people aren't sticking together. together. I don't. Cause I don't people think. say that. I don't understand what that means. Like, what Me is it? What is it? What, let me ask this question. Since you said it, Q. What does that mean? How how should what should be different? How are we not sticking together? Because I feel like when these stories come up, people spread the information. I mean, I don't think our protests are in the streets like it used to be, and I've made this point many times. I mean, a lot of our, a lot of uh, the ways that young black people have been protesting and have been fighting against things have been organizing things online. 
and doing things digitally and, and spreading information. And I think that's a part that's of you know, that's how you unite people. You watch, when I go to my see, I, and also I follow really good people, I guess, because when I go to my Facebook feed, I don't have a bunch of ignorant shit that people talk about. Oh, I don't have that problem because I don't follow ignorant people. But when I go on my Facebook feed, a bunch of black people are spreading this kind of spreading information. I learned about Trayvon Martin. In, the, in that case, some people spreading information. I learned about when you should make bribes, people spreading information. Oscar Grant, spreading information. And a lot of protests have sparked from those situations. So I'm not sure okay. what people mean when they say black people are not, or black males or black people are not sticking together. Sticking together how? What is it that you visually want to see that's not happening? Let me, let me give you the short answer. Uh, with a lot of ladies' groups, uh, let's, let's use black ladies, for example, uh, just the empowerment of uh, self-edifying yourself. Uh, let's use something that everybody knows, uh, BET, Black Girl Rocks. Okay, because there's such an epidemic of a feeling towards some black women in media, what a lot of ladies have honorably done is put together a mechanism for those ladies watching to say, no, we're actually uh, a great, great females and great human beings. That's sticking together. Uh, let me give you another example. Um, guys don't, our, our black males don't necessarily do that for the little boy watching. The little boy watching, uh, unless he had the recent Obama situation, may not have too many things to look forward to. So when I talk about sticking together, I mean, when you have an, it's an issue like you guys are all agreeing upon where you're victimizing a group, then people need to say, Hey, look! Whoa, 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 whoa! You're 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 not gonna do that. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna make sure you get ostracized from political office forever because you're okay with it. If we start saying, um, uh, matter of fact, a, a, a great point, and I'm gonna bow out because I I don't want to dominate the conversation. But uh, Chief Keith, little rapper, 17 years old. This guy slept with a 30 year old woman. There's an actual judge that has now force this teenager to pay this adult child support. That's victimizing that kid, whether he appears to be older or not. And the adult who raped the little boy does not go to jail. These things, if the situation were reversed, women would be up in a roar and that judge would never see the light of day. And But we as men, we don't do that. That's, that's that's those are actually some really good points. I'm sorry. That, yeah, that, those are those are valid points. Those are well, valid. I, I, I don't know if I agree with you 100% on the point because I do I do think that the the idea that I agree with you because men are well, men are our men are being targeted for arrest and incarceration and and to the to the point where a lot of them can't even vote. So yeah, there there is there should be something that that supports men like that. Not that I think that. Black men are more often shown shown in a more positive light than black women, but black men are vilified as dangerous, and and that can be you have a, a greater effect. It really can, right? And, and 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 I'm just holding the conversation. I'm not trying to be right. I'm I'm holding the conversation at the no, same time, learning you, you guys' this process. Well, you so clarified something for me because I didn't understand what you meant. So I, you totally clarified it for me because that what you speak to is is actual specific gender differences in regards to how we mobilize or how we address issues. I thought you were mostly talking about 
black people uniting. I know you said black males uniting, but I, I guess in my mind I still heard it as black people uniting, I, I, which I still think happens. I just don't think it happens in the same way, and I think we miss a lot of things. Um, I but feel I, that I, I do tragedy. Just, just to speak I think, on I, it. I see, I think, I see us do it in tragedy as opposed to, but the brother want to speak. Let me be quiet. Just, um, I just want to get in on this because I've been sort of silent on the whole situation. But I think that with black people, a lot of times when we have movement, things of that nature, they actually tend to be for black males. I think a lot of times, I think black males, I think we do stick together. And I think a lot of us, like, if, even if you look at, like, the civil rights movement, you look at stuff like that, a lot of those people that were there and were representing, they were black males. And I think that the reason why black females have situations like Black Girls Rock is because within the movement for black rights, a lot of times black females aren't included. No matter how that's much very, they actually work that's in a it, valid point how much well. they're actually a part of that's it, a very valid they're point. not included. And I think at the same time, black females, a lot of times, they have two different fights to fight because they have the fight of being black and then they have the fight of being female. And while they may participate in both fights, a lot of times they get pushed to the side in both of them because in the fight for being black, we have situations where people say, well, you know, this is a man situation, you know, let the men handle it. And then in the situation to being a female, you know, people say, well, you're too involved in the black situation. You're too in, into that. You're not really focused on being a female. So I think that a lot of times we do stick together. I think black males do stick together. I think in a lot so of you can, black rights and so, uh, you black can name women, so uh, you're able to name at least just one uh, a situation where black males have progressed in, right? Well, you know, I can name a situation in which black males have, have, have gotten a lot of support and black females haven't. Trayvon Martin got killed and everyone rallied for him. This girl gets shot in the head on someone's porch after wrecking her car and the, barely a peep on the news. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm saying. I mean, there are a lot of situations where we, where, we, where we mobilize around male victims more than we do black, black male victims, more than we mobilize around black female victims. And it's not because there aren't black female victims. We just don't hear about them as much. So I think that's then, a very valid uh, point that Bruce made and that he made. And I think that's what I'm speaking to. I think the whole Trayvon Martin situation was turned into a black situation. Like we rallied, like everybody rallied behind that. It wasn't like, yeah, hey, look, it's a black male mur- situation. Yeah. But you're talking about and, murder. That's not a that's not a male or but, but like, or but like female. She just said, like she just said, the female was shot, and and it's barely even discussed. So so I oh, so okay. I think um, that I, I think well, that a lot of times, you know, we do stick together. You know what I'm saying? And and not just other situations. You know, we do come together. I mean, there was like you know. Like they have black well, I mean, and let's keep in mind stuff also, like the Man marching. Right, I was gonna say, let's keep it. Let's keep in mind also that a lot of times when there are issues that specifically affect black women, there is not. If, if, if black women themselves aren't doing it, black males are not united with black women to address an issue that affects just black women. Whenever there that, that is kind of true. When there are issues um, that you know affect uh, uh, affect. Black men, you will get black women who are united with, who are in support along with black men. Not so much the other way around. I mean, I haven't seen this much. Maybe I missed something. You have a better example. I mean, that's definitely possible. Yeah, but you know what? I have, I have another caller 
on the line. I believe I know who it is. I believe it's one of our panelists for the second segment. I'm not sure, though, so don't quote me. Uh, Caller 909. Caller 909. That's Darren Johnson, one of the panelists. That's that's exactly what I thought. We're going to get into the second segment in a quick second. Actually, I'm going to actually move on to to our next topic, our last topic. I have so many things I wanted to cover. I mean, we had, had so many things listed. Uh, about Michigan lawmakers talk, talking about rape insurance for abortion. Um, <laughs> there's uh, Pentecostal, the Pentecostal pastors in Africa pushing for prayer and not people and not getting people their uh, drug medication for uh, their to treat their HIV. They're saying to pray. I mean, there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, there's also uh, this, the shoe thing with Kanye and Drake, and you know this show is also. You know, a hip-hop show, hip-hop-based show, and I want to talk about that. But there's, of course, there's so much to talk about. Um, but it's already 8 o'clock time for the second segment. I guess we can get into one more story. Um, I'm going to let Bruce uh, pick the story and introduce it. <laughs> mm, let's see. Of these news stories, I mean, I say we go with the pastors and the prayer over drugs. Right. Okay. So, do you want do you want to introduce it, Bruce? Sure, we'll go with that. So, um, let me pull up the news story real quick. Right here. I was looking at Shonda Rhine. So, <laughs> actually, you know what? Just want me to go ahead and do it. I'll just do it. So, um. Basically, in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, at prayer healing services in some Pentecostal churches, pastors invite people infected with HIV to come, uh, and they come forward for a public healing, after which they burn the person's antiretroviral medications and declare the person is cured. And the cure Mm. is not free. And uh, some people say that they shell out their life savings to receive a miracle blessing and quit taking the drugs. Quote, I believe people can be healed of all kinds of sickness, including HIV, through prayers, said Pastor Joseph Mena of Agmo Prayer Mountain, a Pentecostal church on the outskirts of Nairobi. We usually guide them. We don't ask for money. We ask them to leave some seed money that they please. But the controversial ceremonies are raising red flags as believers' conditions worsen and a debate has opened over whether science or religion should take the lead in the fight against the AIDS epidemic. So uh, I, I feel like there's something about this. Um, I, I'm, pretty much, I'm pretty sure everybody on this line is, is pretty much uh, – there is no controversy between whether or not we should be focused on uh, using science or religion to – you know, fight the AIDS epidemic or to help people with HIV. I'm sure there's no debate there with that. But I am curious to know when we well, let me ask this: when we when we talk to other people about why we think uh, religion is can be dangerous, do you think something like this is an example of that? It's a, it's a perfect it's it's a perfect example, and unfortunately, this is happening on a mass level. But it happens all the time, all over the world, and we see examples, uh, you know, with parents and 
I think it was Colorado that let their children get sick and, and, you know, one died and the second child was ill and getting ready to die. And I think that it's it's a charlatan fake killer scam and it has to be it has to be disgraced and it has to be put quite literally on blast and people have to be educated. So the science has to come first. The drugs have to be made available, and if you choose to pray after taking your dose, that's fine. But you cannot dispel uh, the science part of it and and sell the faith side of it. I don't I, really think this is a religious like I I don't really blame religion for this. No, I don't I don't think this shows how religion religion mm-hmm. is dangerous. If this, if this person didn't believe in God or didn't have any religion in their life, they would still be stupid. I think this is a stupidity issue. Uh, you know, I, I think... Wait, 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 you know, wait. My, my, the stupidity issue... Uh, wait, wait, let's rewind. Computer is always so harsh on people. Uh, how is the stupidity <laughs> issue? Well, I, I mean, bottom line is this. Most people who are, who are not ridiculously stupid and believe in God are not going to do this. They're not going to just allow their, they're, they're not going to tell people or allow people to, to die because they don't want to use medicine. Even if you believe in God, if you can think rationally and critically, you can, you can figure out that, well, maybe God made this medicine to cure my child. I'm just saying stupidity plays a big part. No, no, um, no, no. T, T, no. Okay, I feel like me and you have had this debate before <laughs> when we were talking about the parents who beat their children. Oh, not, beat, sorry, not beat their children. The parents that, that don't take their children to the doctor and the kids die. I think we've had a similar discussion. There's a key part in this story that I think you missed. Pentecostal, okay? I've shared, with, I've shared this on the show before. I was raised Pentecostal. In fact, I shared it in that same discussion when we were talking about the parents that don't take their kids to the doctor. Um, I was raised Pentecostal. I understand what they think. I understand the mentality. I don't think it's stupidity. I refuse. I was not stupid when I was religious, when I was Pentecostal. I was a very intelligent person. I like to believe. And I know a lot of intelligent people who were Pentecostal. The problem is that you cut off your logic and your critical thinking when it comes to your spiritual and religious beliefs. That's the problem. I don't think that makes you stupid. I refuse to believe that someone has – I mean, if you sincerely believe that this spiritual being is going to heal you and you have that much faith and you really believe that the world – that this world that you live in when it regards to healing and spirituality and God and a Holy Ghost, if you really believe that's real, sincerely believe that's real, and you believe you have these supernatural that there's a super, that you have supernatural powers and God has supernatural powers, if you believe that's real, I don't think that makes you stupid. I believe it makes you misinformed, indoctrinated, maybe brainwashed, but I don't think it makes you stupid. You know what, honestly, I, I can honestly say I was raised in a Pentecostal church as well. My grandparents went to a Pentecostal church, and when we got sick, they took us to the doctor. Maybe they don't believe as wholeheartedly as other Pentecostal people do. And maybe that's a possibility. I'll grant you that. But I still, my opinion is based on the fact that in a Pentecostal church, we went, we shouted, we didn't cut our hair, we wore long skirts, and we went to the doctor and we were sick. I think, I mean, um, and I may, can, you, can you guys actually hear me? Uh, well, well, one, one thing I, 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 I just want to make a I just want to make a point that this particular <laughs> practice is is P R E Y praying on people who are already in a tremendous amount of state of hopelessness. Exactly. Regardless of, of, of the advances that we've made and how 
people with HIV are now pretty, at this, in 2013, soon to be 2014, pretty much living out the longevity of a healthy life with medication, it still has the stigma of being a death sentence and can create a very real emotional um, imbalance in people who are, um, who are diagnosed HIV positive or terminally ill. And so you're, you're preying on people who have a tremendous state of, of hopelessness and promising them, promising them the blessing and miracle of not only being healed today, but also the grandness of the, the afterlife that is promised with it as well. Thank you, Marissa. Uh, we have to oh, – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I wanted to go ahead and transition uh, over to the next segment soon, but uh, I'm going to see if Bruce has anything he wanted to add. But, yeah, we got to get ready to transition soon. Bruce? Well, I, just, I think that, um, you know, I didn't grow up in any church, so, you know, I don't really have those experiences. But, you know, I think that one of the problems that we have, because I'm all for religion, I mean, we all have our coping mechanisms and ways of dealing with things in life, because life can be hard at times. But I think one of my problems, speaking to our main topic today, is that, you know, especially in entertainment, there's this, like these movies, and they stress this issue of prayer fixes everything. And while Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, prayer, what prayer can do is can give you belief that there's an answer or there's a solution to things. But what people are forgetting is the work that they have to put in to get that. So, you know, and I think that this is an extreme case, you know, of that. And it's sad because, you know, while a couple of those people by chance through just chemistry and biology may somehow survive, most of them won't. And it's because they Mm -hmm. feel that they can just pray and the answer will come. And attaching that to our main topic today, I feel like a lot of these movies and things that we have in entertainment are putting off this image and they're promoting that. That if you just pray, everything will be fixed. And the reality is it's not. And then you can't promote that. And then on the other hand, say, well, if you actually believe this, you're ignorant. I mean, that's that's the other part of that. You can't promote it. And not saying he promotes it, but I'm just saying that. But go ahead. But you also have to look at that they may also believe that the westernized people have actually brought the problem. Because you've got to remember, before Reagan brought his soldiers over in a lot of those regions, they didn't have epidemics the way that they have now. So you've got to also look at that. I mean, those people have lived in those things for centuries and never had those type of things. The closest HIV was in Rome. So you've got to understand that, too. Okay. I think we should, uh, it's 8.11 now. Yeah. (laughs) I think we should go on to the main topic. Oh, yeah. I was waiting on you to do that. Okay. Bruce? Oh, I thought you were going to lead us in. Okay, no problem. So basically, um, we're talking about today, uh, we talked about Black Hollywood before I was actually on here when we talked about black entertainment. And um, today it's we're asking, do we hold black films and TV to a higher or lower standard in comparison to mainstream or non-black films and TV shows? 
So let's just start with that question first of all. I mean, do you guys feel like you view black films and TV differently than you view mainstream films and TV? And do you hold those to a higher standard or do you hold them to a lower standard? Or do you just hold them on the same? Like, do you consider them all equal? Who goes first? Well, Darren, well, you know what? Let's you know what? Let's go ahead and go to Darren first because he before we're waiting on Seagas to join us later. But Darren, um, I want to get your input on this first because you are a filmmaker and you are actually working on a documentary uh, about black atheists and you are you know you mass communi- you study mass communication and I would love to get your perspective on this. Okay, so um, a large part of I you know did in college and in college is me college most of what we've been criticizing has been the largely white you know mainstream media but what i would always do is take a lot of those studies and apply to um, so in that case i guess i could say that i hold them me personally as a black person uh i Personally, in my own eyes, I hold um, black films to a higher standard personally simply because I think that, um, <clears throat> well, we already know that there's a much smaller pool uh, of black film, black media to choose from, generally speaking, anyway. I, it's just ridiculous. That's a whole other topic in itself, how, you know, whitewashed Hollywood is, how everywhere and you just see white, 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 and black quickly show up as sidekicks or background no tokens or tokenism or something like that. So you're saying that you hold you hold black them to a higher regard because of the demographic, like the fact that we're such a smaller pool, such a smaller uh, yeah, part of the population? Yeah, films, as they'll call them. Yeah, you know, we, we have our own um, we're, uh, genre of being in films, which, of course, urban being code for black. Um and uh, it, it's such a small pool to choose from. And when you have such a small pool to choose from, then every single bit of media that goes through gets, you know, more scrutiny from me simply because, you know, every time uh, the next Tyler Perry movie comes out, everyone's going to hear about it, of course, you know, because <laughs> it's a big deal because Tyler Perry's big and, you know, there aren't that many black movies to begin with. So it's kind of a shame that, most of the black films that you hear about give, from year to year is going to be, you know, given it's going to be a Tyler Perry movie. So, um, yeah, I would say that I hold black films to a higher standard. We are capable of doing so much. We have so many interesting stories to tell. And I think that largely not only has Hollywood itself, but I think that, you know, the black filmmakers in Hollywood, for the most part, really have kind of failed us in that, with some exceptions. I'm not saying there are obviously no black, good black films out there, but... Um, I think that we could be doing better. I definitely relate to that. I, I feel like, um, you know, a lot of times when I, I watch these movies and I judge them and I judge the characters and I say, oh, it's terrible, da 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 I think that what, what I'm saying and the way I view it is there's only so many representations of us in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So it's like while, like, white people, for example, you know, they can have movies like, say, American Pie, because they'll have other movies that show them in a different light. They'll be shown in so many different lights. But it's like with us, we only have so many representations of us out there. So when you have Tyler Perry dominating, and that's all you see, he's basically the the visionary for what we look like in Hollywood. 
So if Tyler Perry decides to show uh-huh. all the black men are terrible and, you know, we're all super religious and things of that nature, that's the representation of us in those movie theaters. And that's what every that's what everybody's seeing, and that's where these opinions are coming from. But they go see the movies and they say, oh, in the Tyler uh-huh. Perry movie, you know, I, I had a discussion with somebody at my job, and I, and I said, I was talking about my mother, and I said, yeah, my mother, you know, she, she's crazy, and I was joking. And the person tells me, oh, yeah, I've seen, you know, the Medea movies. That's what your family's like? And it's like, whoa. Whoa. They have of us in these movie theaters, and, and people are jumping to those conclusions because every time they look up, they see, you know, Tyler Perry movies, and, and we should be able to have movies like that, but I think you need balance. And the fact that we don't have balance, that's the problem. I'm not going to, like, say Tyler Perry shouldn't be allowed to make money. That's, that's all fine and dandy. But the fact that there's no balance is a misrepresentation of us because we as the people are balanced and diverse. I, and I that's why I can piggyback off. I can piggyback off something that he mentioned there, you know, how he mentioned this person asked him, you know, mentioned the whole Tyler Perry thing. Oh, I see Tyler Perry movies. This must be where your family's like. You know, in this country, <laughs> as hard as it is to believe here in L.A., where, where um, I think most of us are at, as hard as it is for us to believe, there are still uh, places in this country where, you know, there, you, we won't ever see a black person, where they're, you know, a majority white people and they never meet black people, and their only ideas of blackness come from what they see in the media. And I have actually met a couple of people like this in my life that have, you know, moved to California after living in, um, in one case, one girl was from Minnesota, and the other one I think was from North Dakota. And their, their ideas of blackness and what black was, they got entirely from TV. And so, yeah, they're well, let me ask, to... Let me ask this question. Do you think that yeah. by us saying, well, these representations are making people believe these things about us, are we giving a pass to people who are... Racist? I mean, there are all kinds of images on television. You, you don't watch a buffoon white person on TV or a film and say, well, this is all white people. So why, I, kinda, I mean, are we, are we giving a pass to people saying, well, they're racist to us and they think these ignorant things because of our movies? Well, I mean, as opposed to these people who are ignorant and thinking ignorant things. By piggybacking off of, uh, I think it was Bruce, but it could have been Dan. I uh, said earlier in that um, there uh, there are so fewer all black cast movies than there are mainstream white representation movies. So a- as a film buff, as a movie buff, I've watched every title I could get my hand on in, in the sci-fi genre and in the comedy genre. And he's absolutely right. There are for every flop there is a different representation there. So you do have a visualization that provides a a variety for white people, and you have a smaller scope for for the African-American community. But I think that that is changing as we start to see within, really within this decade, more mainstream television shows and movies that are providing um, main characters and leads in uh, in in their casting, and so it it is changing, and I think it's a double-edged sword. We can't necessarily, you know, pin ourselves to just making all these strong all-black cast movies and then complain that we're not in the mainstream. It has to be 
a balance of both. We have to be willing to, you know, work in a diverse cast as well as, you know, having movies that reflect more accurately what the black uh, what the black community is like. You know, I always yeah. look at it as if we're oversaturating, if we're oversaturating uh, for the uh, uh, Stephen Fetchett type of mainstream or the um, uh, Atlanta Housewives type of mainstream, which I think is slowly killing us, if, if the uh, struggling filmmaker is, is, is what's needed, he, he needs to come to the forefront. The guy going direct to video, I wish TV One would just do a, a at-night spot of just putting out whoever went direct to, uh, direct to a video the way they used to do it. Um, the way uh, when uh, Magic Johnson had his theaters, uh, people who were uh, trying to get in, Magic Johnson would give them an hour at, at his theater. I mean, that's lost on me, uh, which is one of the reasons why I always try to say that issue, as opposed to Tyler Perry, is more diverse in his movie making than, let's say, a Tyler Perry. Even though Tyler Perry does the same thing over and over again, it slowly kills us because, to your question, this is all they see. And if the oversaturation uh, is Stephen Fetchett, I mean, hey. Let's go a little bit beyond just images. I mean, I think that's important, and, I, and I, I'm glad we had that discussion. Let's talk about quality. Let's okay. talk about, because, yeah, Bruce actually at the beginning of the show made it quite clear, and he, as well as he made it quite clear on my Facebook page, not that I didn't make it quite clear as well, <laughs> which is that we didn't like Best Man Holiday. We didn't think it was that great of a movie. Um, well, Bruce hated it. He said it was awful. But, I mean, it's, but the representation itself, <laughs> representation itself wasn't bad. I mean, they were successful people. They were college graduates. Um, they, I mean, it was a very positive image as far as, um, you know, there was no uh, what we call buffoonery. There was no what we call buffoonery or any of that. But there is a lot of criticism about, you know, the dialogue, the writing, the inconsistencies, the fact that Morris Chestnut was old as fuck and he still was playing football. I mean, there was all kinds of criticisms about that movie and uh, that outside of just images and representation of black people. And I don't know, maybe Bruce actually talked a little bit more about that. I think the thing is, I think this is a, a major problem that we have with situations like this. It's like, you know, we have to support black filmmakers and we have to like we want to see black actors with jobs we want to if, if we don't support these actors and these filmmakers and these directors they're not going to have a job because it is a business at the end of the day but so then you have a situation that's like okay well do we just support anything because i mean looking at the script to that that best man movie looking back at that movie as a whole just away from the images because you know i have issues with the tyler perry movies for the images that they that they put out there, but I also have issues with the script and things of that nature as well. And with this movie, I had a lot of issues with the script and the way it was written and certain things, certain details that just weren't paid attention to. So it's like, okay, if I don't support that movie, then we'll, like, when's the next time there's going to be a black movie? Because it's like as an industry, they, they look at it and they say, well, you know, these movies don't do that well. So, you know, we can't yeah. have a movie with an all-black cast right. because it's not, right. not going to do well. So then so so it's like, okay, speech. I have to support. But then it's like, man, but at the same time, that movie is bad. You know, that movie is bad. So it's like, 
we're put in this 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 situation where it's like we have to support it so we can have movies out there, but then do we just support anything? And I think this, the major problem is I think we need more attention given to talent. You know, we can't, can I, like, we, we have to support black stuff, but we have to support good black stuff. I, I think ask, uh, a good question, I, I well, think, just, I'm sorry, just one ahead, second. Um, I actually got a good question from the chat room, uh, from Shakisha in the chat room, since she won't call in. <laughs> I would like for her to call in, actually, because she, I, and Bruce kind of went at it on Facebook about the same movie, so I'm hoping Shakisha will call in. Oh. But um, she asked the question, I guess the first thing we should have asked at the beginning of the show is how are we defining black film and TV shows? Because some people consider The Butler a black film, and that wasn't written by a black person. So uh, just curious about how, how are we in this conversation, how do, you guys, how do you want to, or how do you personally define black film and TV? So let's, let's Ooh, go with there. That's definitely tricky. Typically when I say a black film or, or black television show, I mean a show that, that uh, focuses on um, um, at least a majority black cast or the main characters or themselves are black, uh, typically, um, because you can also, of course, have films about white people written by black people. I mean, uh, Spike Lee uh, made um, was that a I think he's done a few, but I know there's at least Summer of Sam. So, you know, that's not a black film, but it was written by a black person or directed by a black person at least. So um, uh, in my case, I'm only talking about um, the majority of the cast is black is, is what I'm thinking of. Okay. Uh, Marissa, how would you define a black film, if you do even define that as a category at all? You know, I just I think that um... – Again, I would say it's a double-edged sword, and 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 I was thinking about some of my favorite movies that are that are mainstream movies that are blockbusters that people, most people, the general public probably doesn't know has had a black hand behind it, like the Underworld uh, trilogy. You know, I mean that, that there's the main one of the actors in there, Kevin Garot, who plays one of the werewolves. Um, not only starred in the film, but also also co-wrote the script, as well as uh, created the mythology behind behind the underworld lore. And I think that it, I I personally would rather not narrow the scope to just an all black cast or or um, you know behind the scenes cast, and would would prefer to spotlight. Um, much more generally in, in terms of black actors, black writers, and black directors, because ultimately, isn't that really our goal, is to move up and move forward into the mainstream? Are we just talking about spotlighting? Isn't that our goal? I mean, isn't I that really power. I, 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 power. Power to green light, power, power to green light the film. I, I, I definitely agree with what she's saying, but I, I think that one of the one of my issues specifically is that you know are our stories being told? Like it's great to be able to do those other no. movies, but if we don't tell our stories, who's going to tell them? And right, um, I think that's largely what the problem is. Is you know we're having we're not really having our and when I say our, I mean you know blacks not even just African-Americans, but blacks, we are not having our stories told. We're having these stories, you know, even, you know, Best Man Holiday, we still have these, you know, black films and television shows, but these films and television shows are still coming from production companies 
than you know television production companies that are still white owned. They still have to be okay ultimately by a white person, um, and basically they're just going to sh- shut out what is considered marketable, and what is considered marketable is usually not a good representation of anything. It's about making money rather than actually telling good stories, quality stories. And, you and know, so you, this isn't necessarily a thing about stereotypes, you know, being afraid of kind of stereotype or that kind of stereotype, but having blacks in the majority of uh, roles, having blacks in the majority of uh, different types of stories, instead of us being in either, you know, these overdone, you know, Tyler Perry-esque dramas, or these over-the-top, you know, soul-playing comedies. You know, that seems to be one or the other for us, and there's so much more to us. There's so much more to our story, you know? Mm -hmm. Some weird noise in the background. If you guys are having some issues in your background, please make sure you mute your phone. We will be okay. Um, I wanted to kind of address something I think Marissa said, which was that – you know, isn't that the goal to get into the mainstream? And I question that too. Like, is that like is that necessary? I get that we want it, I mean, we want different images portrayed to the world and that kind of thing. But at the same time, is there any harm? And I mean, maybe this is the segregationist point of view, but uh, is there any harm in just saying, "Hey, look, we're black filmmakers. We want to do our own shit, market to our own audience, and do our thing, and call it a day, and that's okay." I mean, it, it doesn't have to be marketed to the mainstream. Does it have to be pushed into the – do we have to have that um, – is, is it necessary for us to be mainstream? Can we be okay just saying we're, we're black filmmakers, black writers, black actors, and we market to black people? I mean, those DVD sales of those black B-movies are, aren't, aren't doing bad at all. I mean, they're actually doing pretty well. I think Vivica Fox said that's where all her money is coming from yeah, right now is these – B-list movies that are going straight to DVD that are black producers, writers, uh, key grips, you know, all that stuff. And that's why I said earlier that the direct-to-video person is actually our, our best representation like well, right now. Like me, I didn't have a problem with the holiday movie because I just looked at it like Mystic Pizza. Mystic Pizza had a bunch of flaws. <laughs> Mystic Pizza was an oh, all-white thing. That was a horrible thing. movie. I saw it on Netflix. But, I but, 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 but look, <laughs> but look it's a cultural icon. Movie? I never saw that. But it's a cultural icon for white people. It's still making money for the people who created it. So to the panelist's point of view, you have to submit something that isn't a man in a dress part 15 you have to uh, uh, you have to conform to something, otherwise you're going to get man in the dress Christmas. Oh well, we are going to make that aren't we? Yeah, so you know, it's like we're going to continue to have that problem unless we 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 take the direct to video guy the way BET used to, and they used to take the struggling brother. Remember there was a movie something in Brooklyn or something the brother had 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 made something. BET put that out late night before they start doing the uncut nonsense. So I just wish we get back to that so we can highlight the guy that's struggling and make him into a rain tree or or a cold black um, or whatever the case may be. Let me, let me bring up um, wait, wait, something wait, wait, that I, I have another caller. I have another caller. I'm so sorry. Uh, another I, caller. I know you can't see the pushing board, but uh, yeah, I have another caller. Caller is three two three. Uh, you want to go ahead and chime in? So post your name and where you're calling from. This is Shakisha, and I was I only Hello. called in. I did I just wanted to listen, but I only called in because you put me on blast. 
When we had this conversation on Facebook, that was like my main point that, you know, we, I, I, as black people, we do hold black movies to um, a higher standard. And I don't know who was just talking, but I completely agree with, um, with your statement about Mystic Pizza, which, by the way, I love that movie. I think it's like one of those Thank old you. classic movies, you know? I think my main point um, is that, you know, not everything is going to be, you know, groundbreaking, Oscar-worthy. Sometimes, like, you need a Footloose or a Mystic Pizza or a Best Holiday, you know, and that appeals to a certain demographic. So you're saying that Best Holiday is along the lines of a Mystic Pizza or a Footloose. They're these really corny uh, movies that aren't really that great on quality standards, but they, right, have, not a lot they give of you a certain feeling. They give you a certain feeling. They become many classics um, in certain communities. It's almost yeah. the same script. <laughs> uh, I never saw Mr. Pizza, is, so. I'm perfectly fine with that. To watch it. I'm perfectly yeah. fine with that. I think the problem is that that's all we're getting. Like, I'm perfectly fine with those movies existing. Like, for example, you know, uh, you know, I'm a writer. I write about hip-hop. And in the early 90s, you know, we had acts like A Tribe Called Quest and Wu-Tang Clan. Yes. And at the same time, we had Luke. And that's fine. We had different things going on. We had the NWAs and stuff like that. There was all sorts of stuff going on. And I think that right now in Hollywood, at least in, in the public's eye, we don't have that, you know, and I think we should be able to have movies like Best Man Holiday. I don't, I don't think everything has to be up for some major award, but I think the problem is we don't have the other representations at the same time. You know, all we I have mean, right now is the Luke. We don't have the Tribe Called Quest and the Wu-Tang Clan. We just got Luke. That's, that's <laughs> because Jerry <laughs> That's because Jerry Heller came in and recognized that he could exploit one aspect of, of of a situation. So in in movies right now, we got these Jerry Heller type of people who say, you know what? Let me get another one of these soul planes. Let me get another one of these ha ha he he, and and get that in. And, and I'm glad Vivica Fox is doing doing his thing. And that's one of the reasons why Bob left uh, Tyler to go star Bobcat Films. Because you got to have this diversity. So, so question, I, think, question I agree with that. that. And we, we don't necessarily even have to have, you know, when I say that we need higher quality, I'm not saying that all films, all black films need to be, you know, award winners and everything like that. In fact, you know, my argument against that would be that um, there's a lot of stuff that is award winning that I don't even like. I mean, a lot of people can, there are a lot of, you know, movie snobs would uh, say that Citizen Kane is one of the, uh, is the best movie of all time. And I tried to watch Citizen Kane and I fell asleep. I couldn't get all the way through it. So it's not even about winning awards, but even comedy, you know, comedy is to make, is, is to make us laugh. Comedy is to, you know, not to be taken seriously. And, but there is still such a good thing as good comedy and bad comedy. Some people are funny, some people are not. And, uh, you know, Tyler Perry would be a perfect example of what I would say is just not funny. That's just not quality comedy. It's just repetitive. It's just well, out there to make that easy, quick buck, which is what so, so much of Hollywood is about. Just stick Let with me that. ask I this question, though. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bruce, and then I'm going to ask my question. Go ahead, Bruce. 
I, I was going to say, because we, we're talking a lot about what's out there now, what we see now. But the thing is, not too long ago, we had movies like Brown Sugar and The Inkwell and Love and Basketball and, you know, and then Boys in the Hood and Men's Society and, and all these things. Alongside love, you know, something like Friday, right? Alongside exactly. Friday. Had, like, had, next next Friday and Love and Basketball came out, at the same, came out around the same time. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then we had we had all that different stuff going on, you know, to, especially to Darren specifically because you work in film. What is it that that's had this, you know, that got us here? You know, why are we here now when we had all those movies out before? We are where we're at. Um, you know, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that for a second. But, yeah, um, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you exactly why we uh, keep having Medea movies, because people keep going to see them, and it's a cash cow. If people stop going go. to the Medea movies, well, that's why we have that. Would not be put out. See, I think anymore. Tyler Perry's going to jump the shark. I think Tyler Perry's jumping the shark right now as we speak. So, I mean, come on, Medea's after Medea. What's that one movie? Medea. Uh, what's the movie with Medea? The one where they, he, yeah, witness protection. Like, it went from having all black cast, like this white family, the guests to be more mainstream. I mean, and now this other movie is coming out. I mean, I think he's jumping the shark, and he tries with these dramatic films that suck, like the one with the girl with AIDS, whatever that movie was called. Um, it was, I mean, he's just not. It's about to be a wrap for him. So, so what he did, he did something genius. And someone on my Facebook page actually said Tyler Perry was their hero because of his business mind. But I, he, 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 he did employ black people. He did employ black people. I mean, there are black actors and actresses that were not getting jobs, and they're in his films, and they're able to get paid now. So, I mean, to be fair, he does Provide that, um, and it's I don't want to. Sad though, that that's kind of sad. It is sad. There's no place for that to go. But the way that but, but, but what Tyler Perry did was he just makes super smart. It's something that all of us on here have an issue with. He tapped into the church. He tapped into the black church crew. He was doing these church plays, which, by the way, makes those alone make plenty of money. I mean, I don't know how many church plays I hear about on the radio. On out here in LA, especially, you hear about these things all damn day. There's always some church play or some gospel play or something going on. And Tyler Perry took that and put it to film and united all the black people in the United States to, to say, oh, let's go see some church, you know. Let's see some good moral church movie, you know. And, and it, it, the hyper-religiosity is what got the cash cow. That's what made black film, even even in Best in Holiday, they upped Morris Chestnut's religiosity in, in the second movie. So that's really, that's really what's happening. I mean, I think this tapping into the, the black church, which ended up being a cash cow, is what caused a lot of this. But, but let well, me go, I think let me go back to your original. Let me go back to your original question: uh, is whether or not we we should be focusing on uh, all black cast film or mainstream uh, presence. And one of the things that really happened with uh, the the Medea series is that the African-American community rallied, rallied for this because it was, it was an opportunity to support the African-American community. Here comes a movie with an all-black cast and, and staff, right? So, but what happens now is that that's all we're getting. My argument would be, 
one of the reasons why we need to also take into consideration the mainstream push is so that we can see that variety out there and not just that churn of Medea, 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 Medea. If we started really following the mainstream and supporting the directors and the writers and the actors that happen to be African-American and in movies that we enjoy, then they become coveted artists and their value goes up, and all of a sudden we start to see more of their presence in the mainstream. So why don't we talk about the But to answer her question more directly, I look at it as, as a movie buff. I watch French films, English films, all types of it, – it, I think we here in America, we critique our black films a little too much. It's like, you know, I, I look at this 12, 12 years of slave syndrome versus, versus a, 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 a Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry is getting also non-black people to go and get their stereotype from, just like someone mentioned earlier. But 12, uh, 12 Years of Slave, I think, is probably the best film I've ever seen put together. But that's me. To, 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 to critique it. To, 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 to over-critique it, it's like, you know, it, it, it kind of plays into what the panelists said. We're, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot because the white folks, the Asian folks, the Indian folks is watching the man in a dress part 15. So, you know, when we critique 12 Years of Slave or Vivica Fox production, it's like, come on, man, we kind of killing our inkwell. Let me ask this question, because I feel like my issue is with 12 Years a Slave, I mean, I don't even really have an issue with that one because I haven't seen it yet, but, you know, 12 Years a Slave or The Butler or even Best Men Holiday, like, why don't we ever have movies that are, like, you know, like, why don't I have an action movie which just happens to have a black cast or a sci-fi movie that just happens to have a black cast? I don't think we get enough of that. I mean, I think Will Smith tried to do it with, Will Smith tried to do it with After Earth, and I think he could, I mean, I think he could have done a lot better. So I actually went to the theater to see it just, just to support. A lot better. And it could, he could have done a lot better. I'm trying to be nice. You guys are always so mean. I'm so nice. You guys are so mean. Um, I, I really think he could have done a better job, but I appreciated what he was trying to do. He got a pretty much majority black cast to do a movie that was not about a specific point in history or to point out our culture or, you know, like, or, you know, our supposed culture or whatever, you know, it was just a movie that was action, that was science, that was, you know, sci-fi. That's what he was trying. I mean, I appreciated that. Why don't we see more of that? It's what I was, what I said earlier about, you know, there's only just a handful of different types of films that you'll see blacks in these days, at least in the mainstream. And it's going to be the overdone, overwrought drama, or it's going to be the overly goofy comedy, or I forgot the third one, which is, um, you know, big these days, and I guess you could call it like, kind of like the slave or um, helper drama, which seems to be big now ever since The Help, and then The Butler, and now 12 Years a Slave. So basically you have those three types of movies, and, you know, pretty much as far as sci-fi is concerned, Will Smith is the only person I can think of, other than um, Denzel Washington was in... Not can remember the name of the movie. Futuristic, dystopian future where he had to protect the Bible. Book, book oh, oh, yeah. Uh, book of Eli. 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 Book of E
Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't hear any of what you guys just said. There's a lot of books. Oh, I said, I said it was a good film. Book of Eli. It was a good film. Book of Eli. I Book of that. Eli. There we go. You know, we, we are capable of playing these roles, but Hollywood has us in this, this small bubble, which, I, which is what I'm saying is the problem. But basically, you know, it's, it's, what it is, it's, it's sending out this message about what we are. We are only, it's it, this narrow message of black people are only these types of people. And meanwhile, you know, obviously you can see whites in any kind of movie. We can do any kind of movie. Why aren't there more sci-fi films with, with majority black people? You know, how, I don't, why don't we see in that? Because I'm going to say right now, I think we have no question out there, But we are very much capable of doing that. I'm going to chime in. I completely agree with you. My sister is sitting here listening with me, and she whispered under her breath, because black people won't go see that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I'm just putting yeah. that out there. What? Really? But how do we know that? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why won't black people, of course, I mean, if this is, if this is your opinion or her opinion, why won't black people go see it? I'm, I'm interested in hearing that perspective. Because of the way they treated Spawn. <laughs> I actually think that black people could have gone out to see that Will Smith movie. I really wanted to see it. Then I found out that M. Night Shyamalan directed it. And I hate him. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So I never. Yeah, I hate. Him. I hate him too. I understand. Uh, I'm not a fan of Shyamalan. I mean, but, I mean uh, he, he was he's kind of garbage. His first few films were fantastic, and then I don't know what happened. I disagree. Uh, I disagree. He only made one good film. <laughs> All the rest of them were shitty. As I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> unbreakable. Unbreakable uh, was a piece of hot oh, shit. I'm Mike sorry. <laughs> The Sixth Sense was the, the best movie he did, and then uh, the one about the aliens was okay. Everything after that was just downhill. Did he make some other movies? I think that there are other, other sci-fi movies. I mean, just off the top of my head, you have Blade with... You know, Wesley Snipes and Will Smith certainly headlines quite a few movies. Uh, I Am Legend, which was a remake that in one one of the few instances where a remake was better than the original. (laughs) But, um, you know, I mean, it's it's easy to have a majority black cast with like one person in the the damn movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean. And, and then my, you know, my, my Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, the new Nelson Mandela film is coming out, Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, Jennifer Hudson was in a, a movie playing Winnie Mandela. Um, so there's stuff out there. Um, yeah, I mean, you got, you, you've got Sleepy Hollow, Almost Human, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and then, uh, you know, in, in, uh, this is actually a British production, Merlin, but Gwen, Guinevere was played uh, by a black woman, and that series ended with her being the queen. I think that this decade is starting to see blacks or African Americans in more Some, prominent roles. Someone, Actually, uh, someone, um, someone just hit me up and brought up uh, The Matrix, black, and, and he said it was black led with the you know, brown cast. Um, I just want to make sure someone Very mentioned true. that movie, The Matrix, yeah. Uh, actually, oh, uh, I wanted to mention the movie uh, that was the, stolen by the Bill Corner. I did not hear because I heard like three people talking. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, Bruce, uh, I, I, I think it was Bruce and Q were talking at the same time, or Darren and someone. Uh, 
I'm going to go to Darren first because he's the panelist and he gets the right to answer the questions first. Go ahead, Darren. <laughs> well, did someone actually put a question? Because I was going to make a comment. Oh, well, I mean, no, go ahead, man. Oh, um, my comment was that um, actually statistically uh, there are actually slightly fewer blacks in, like, primetime television than there were, um, what is it, uh, about 10, 8 to 10 years ago. The, the um, number, the percentage has actually decreased somewhat. And that's actually not difficult. When you're talking about just television, and I'm sure we could apply this to movies as well, but if you look at CBS, uh, this is referring to um, one of the um, – Someone mentioned, uh, you know, the, all these different roles that blacks are getting, but there are actually, you know, fewer blacks on television than there were roughly 10 years ago. And when you look at CBS and NBC and ABC especially, and um, UP, then also... That's because UPN is mm, over. That's because UPN got canceled. UPN doesn't exist anymore. UPN doesn't exist anymore. But, it, but um, <laughs> CBS and NBC and ABC are almost entirely lily white. Oh, and the CW too just lily white, just good luck finding any black people other than like maybe background characters or something on any of those networks. So um, actually blacks are, are kind of depressingly rare and um, you can find some examples. It's kind of interesting that Fox right now seems to be leading the pack as far as the, uh, the main television networks because some of those shows you just mentioned like Sleepy Hollow and they also have Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And these are the networks that this network actually has, you know, a healthy amount of black people yeah. Or at least more than the other networks do, but yeah, it's it, it's black people in primetime television is hard to find. I have another call. Uh, a lot, uh, caller five six one. Who are you? What's your name and where are you calling from? <laughs> if your area code is five six one, that's fine. You don't have to speak. They're quiet. Um, that's cool. That's cool. You don't have to talk. I'm gonna put your. If you want to talk, I want to go ahead and uh, press one, and then I'll let, I'll let me know that you do want to talk. So you're back on mute until you press one. Uh, it's okay. I'm sorry. Um, someone was making a comment, and I did not hear who that was. Isn't that weird, though, that uh, Fox, the number one racist uh, network, is actually helping out black folks the most? Fox well, before we're not talking about Fox News, though. Yeah, about, Fox uh, News is a, sort of a separate animal. Fox is indeed kind of a strange beast as far as as far as you know racial um, uh, representation is concerned. They actually have been consistently, you know, had a lot of uh, black shows even through the '90s. If you go back to like Martin and Living Single and New York Undercover, right. that was '90s. That was Fox. Fox has actually been on, kind of on top of this, and um, you know, it's easy to demonize Fox, but as someone pointed out, we got to realize Fox the um, Entertainment Network is not necessarily the same as Fox News. It's still under the same umbrella. They're still owned by News Corp. They're still owned by Rupert Murdoch. But, you know, it's not quite the same thing. That's why um, FX, which is um, a Fox-owned network, also had um, the show that was recently canceled to to my despair, um, uh, Totally Biased, which was a talk show hosted by a black man that talked about not just black issues, but issues to all, you know, really minority groups in the U.S., and he talked about it blatantly and openly and bluntly, and, you know, maybe it was a little too, maybe it was a little too real for people because it was recently canceled. But you know, I was amazed to see a show that real on a Fox network. That was amazing. And, and know, I'm also I, amazed Fox is a weird, is a weird beast. And, and I'm I also amazed because they employ a lot of brothers. So what, what did you say? 
I said, and I'm also amazed because they employ a lot of brothers. There's a lot of brothers I know that work at Fox. Okay. You, you know what's funny? I know, I know, about our, but I know black people who work at Fox Sports. I don't know any that work in any other part, but I know a few that work in black sports, Fox Sports. But um, I, you know, getting back to the to television though, I don't know if you guys know this, but Shonda Rhimes is going to be honored for creating jobs for women and minorities. Um, her and uh, Betsy Beers, who is her business partner, um, they are so they are being honored uh, for providing jobs and other opportunities for women and minorities, and for having. Um, and they're getting the Divorce Diversity Award. And the thing about this award is that it's, they're giving it to her because, you know, not just because she employs them, but also because the characters that she shows on television, there are various backgrounds, races, sexualities, and religions. And, and I've heard her say herself that she's trying to create this, um, this uh, not, I want to say utopia, but this place where those things don't matter. These are still, you know, uh, these are not one-dimensional people. These are people with all types of, of, of experiences and uh, things like that. So I, I'm interested in what you guys think about her getting this award. I mean, I personally don't see a problem with it, but I could, I'm open to hearing anyone else has any other perspective on it. I mean, the diversity, and, I, and by the way, this is coming from, um, what is it called, the Director's Guild. Who is this? I, I need to ask. I didn't catch her name. Um, who is this? Oh, no, 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 the producer of Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy, Scandal. Yeah, and she's uh, getting the director's guild, uh, getting the work on the director's guild of America. Uh, let's, let's handle that because I haven't really watched any of her shows, so I. She's actually a well-rounded producer because she did private practice as well back in the day. She did private practice. She did the practice back in the day. Yeah, Private Practice, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal. Um, she's actually, I heard she's doing something with um, Issa Rae, Issa Rae, writer of Awkward Black Girl. She's doing some work with her. Well, I was going to work, but I guess... Right. She was you know, way better than the lady who you know, produced all of the uh, Atlanta Housewives and Love and Hip Hop. You know, that, that sister is, 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 is killing us. Well, yeah, nobody's giving her an award for shit. I mean, really. <laughs> Who's going to give her a fucking award? <laughs> I mean, and if somebody does give her a fucking award, I mean, not to cuss so much, because I probably shouldn't cuss as much as I do, but, like, to give her a fucking award, it would be a slap in the face, and I would slap that motherfucker in the face. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. That's so ignorant. I, I can't stand all those reality shows. They're just so beyond ridiculous. I even had people tell me that this was an accurate depiction of black women. This is what I've had someone tell me Whoa. that these reality shows are accurate depictions of black women. Well, you I don't know who's having all that background noise. Please mute your phone. I think what upsets me the most about uh, the comparison with Real Housewives is that um, it's – it's un- it's unfair to uh, to be held to one show that has a a black cast out of a series of there has got to be at least five different Real Housewives Beverly Hills Orange County New Jersey New York that all depict the same amount of drama with non black women in there but the one that has the black cast suddenly represents all black people. And I think right. that's, an unfair, that's an unfair stereotype and one that really has to be pointed out to whomever 
is making that comparison. It there is a stereotype. But, but, but it goes back that, to what you guys that. said earlier. But it goes back to what you guys have said earlier about there not being enough images. Did you guys? I don't know about you specifically, Marissa, but this was brought up earlier in the conversation that there there aren't enough images of black women outside of some of these shows. Definitely, and I think that's why I'm perfectly fine with Shonda Rhimes being honored, even though yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of Scandal. I'm I really don't like the show, but. You know, I, you have to acknowledge it, and I'm saying she has created these roles, and she creates different roles, and it's not the same thing, you know, and I think that's been my issue with Tyler Perry is that, you know, if I don't like one movie, that's perfectly fine. I don't have to like anything that everybody does, and, you know, as long as they're giving opportunities to people, that's great, but I think the difference between her and him is even if I don't like Scandal, she creates completely different shows and employs completely different people, and completely different roles. So it's like, you know, even though I'm not the hugest fan of Scandal, you know what I'm saying, I acknowledge that, you know, and I like that she provides these roles for people and these different roles and different shows. Thank you. And on that note, uh, we're going to have to wrap. we got like four minutes left in the show. Um, and I, I know you guys like to go into overtime, but uh, I cannot do those anymore because I have to be up early. But I do appreciate everyone who is on, uh, who has called in, who's participating in the chat room, and I, of course, appreciate Bruce for helping me with the show, and Darren as well. Um, oh, actually, before I actually come do a complete close, I really also want to tell you guys: you guys need to be supporting. I mean, not, this is my urge to you. I encourage you to support these independent black films that are making it in these festivals. I try to attend the Pan-African Film Festival every year. Um, it's here when we have it here in L.A. And I, I try to, when I go to certain film festivals, I specifically try to seek out black films that I want to support. Uh, one film that I actually interviewed with people, uh, the, the director as well as the producers of this particular movie called Dear White People, I interviewed them uh, about a year ago. And they were, they put a Kickstarter together um, to raise money to put the film out, and now it's accepted into to Sundance. So I just want to say we, could, we should continue to do that, support these kind of films. And, and if, you guys, if you guys want to uh, get more information on Dear White People, go to DearWhitePeopleMovie.com. I encourage you to see it. Um, from what I, The parts that I've seen were really, really great. Um, as far as if you talk about telling our story, this is a story about black uh, youth, in, uh, black college youth. So I think this. I think things like that are fantastic. And also, I support a lot of things that Easter Ray does, and I try to seek out, like I said, black um, filmmakers who are on the independent scene. I, w- I don't want you guys to forget those. Um, but getting to closing, thank you again to everyone. Um, I also want to make sure that I put these announcements out here. Uh, December 15th, there's a webcast webisode with Donald Wright. Uh, people of color beyond faith are doing this webisode discussing uh, black atheism and the experience of, you know, being in hiding as a black atheist. So please check that out on YouTube. It's going to be, like I said, 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific Center time uh, on YouTube, www.youtube.com slash POC Beyond Faith if you want to check that out. And also don't forget to check out don't forget to check out the next Black Rethinkers show, which is tomorrow, 3 p.m. Pacific time, 6 p.m. Eastern time with Emma Evil. They will be having a good discussion with Black Atheist of America founder and activist Ayanna Watson. So go to our uh, blog talk page to get that link. And, uh, again, thank you to everyone. Thank you to Bruce. You can check out his work at – where can they check you out, Bruce? Uh, I'm actually in, 
places. Um, more frequently, I'm at hiphopdx.com. That's where I do a lot of my writing and stuff. And I have another website I'm actually working on. I'm not going to speak on that yet. We're just going to okay. stick with hiphop DX for right now. Right. And, uh, and we have some, and we actually have some groups, right? So hit me up if you want to join some of our groups. Um, it's reality is real. So I'm um, sorry, Bruce. We have where I have. I have like 10 seconds left. So, again, special thanks to all of you. Special thanks to Kim for this opportunity. And also want to give a special shout-out to Grand Unified Theory Collective whoop, and Black Skeptics LA. I'm your host, Dita Star. Add me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter under the name Dita Star, V-I-D-A-S-T-A-R-R. Thank you. And thank you, night.